On June 17th, a Rubicon of sorts was crossed in Geneva. The World Trade Organization, the WTO, agreed to the compulsory licensing for COVID-19 vaccines. Now, in plain English, world leaders, including the U.S. Trade Representative, agreed to allow countries to access core mRNA intellectual property. The Wall Street Journal editorial board said the agreement is a vehicle to raid U.S. innovation that will benefit China and set a precedent that erodes intellectual property protection, unquote. I'm speaking today with Hans Sauer, the Deputy General Counsel for Intellectual Property for the Biotechnology Industry Organization, Bio, and an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law School. Hans attended the WTO meeting and is considered one of the world's leading patent attorneys in the biopharma sector. Hans, it's always great to see you, sir. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's our pleasure. Patent and IP law can become really complex really fast, obviously. Can you start us off by explaining what exactly happened at the WTO around TRIPS? What does this mean in plain English? Waivers, right? And uh, this is how this is being talked about. It's a big waiver decision at the WTO. So I think it's good to start by, by resetting here and reminding listeners that waivers under WTO guidelines per se are actually not all that uncommon. They're usually much more specific than what we have here. So for example, when a particular WTO member country wants temporary relief from some specific trade obligation, right? when the government of Ecuador has a beef about banana exports with the European Union tariff obligations, these things can and, and sometimes are waived. Um, and under WTO rules, waivers, uh, if they're granted, must refer to unusual and extraordinary circumstances. They must be justified, they must be specific. They're being monitored while they are in place and they must sunset at a specific date. Now, the TRIPS agreement is one of several agreements in the World Trade Organization. Well, TRIPS is the agreement that relates to intellectual property uh, and a lot of innovation technology. And as such, is a, it's a very important component of modern rules-based international trade. Relevant, maybe for this discussion, is that least developed countries already have a waiver from uh, their obligations to implement the TRIPS agreement. So least developed countries basically don't even need to have robust patent laws or copyright laws until 2034. So there's already um, an escape clause in there um, for developing countries. Yes, for, for least developed countries, it's a defined group of WTO member countries. And paradoxically, what many of the countries that are demanding uh, the global TRIPS waiver for vaccine, COVID vaccine intellectual property are in that block. So they're basically demanding uh, to be free of obligations that already don't apply to them because they already have a waiver until 2034. I presented at the GIRP conference in Berlin a couple weeks before the WTO meeting where all this broke out. And at that time, several countries in Europe were saying, look, we've got 50 million doses of you know Pfizer mRNA, Moderna mRNA vaccine, and we've been offering to give this stuff for free to a lot of the developing countries, Africa, et cetera, and nobody wants it. We're going to have to dump them out. If we can't even give the mRNA away, the vaccines away for COVID-19, why do we need this waiver now? What's the motivation then? Why is this being done? Well, 
um, the waiver was never needed. That was clear already in the fall of 2021. Why is it being done? Um, I think there are a large number of reasons and a lot of the, the demandeurs who asked for this waiver and the push for its expansion into other technologies uh, probably have their own reasons and they're not all the same. For some countries, uh, it clearly is a desire to get access to modern high-end technology. And uh, in that sense, it's good to remind people sure. that um, during the course of the COVID pandemic, uh, more than 20, if we focus only on vaccines, more than 20 vaccines were developed around the world using different technology platforms and were developed for, for human use until to uh, emergency use authorizations and to approval. Right? So we have 20 vaccines that are being deployed around the world, but the discussion only ever focuses on two of these products, the vaccines that use the most modern high-end uh, biomanufacturing and drug delivery technology. Nobody's clamoring for access to the technology that underlies Sputnik or the, Sinopharm. The Oxford, the Oxford vaccine. Or yeah, yeah well, exactly. Um, and, or, or the Cuban vaccines. There are three, right? Or Turkovac, which was yeah. developed in Turkey. So there are vaccines that people have never heard of that are actually being used around the world that nobody's talking about. And Sputnik yeah. actually had pretty good data, too, actually, ironically. Yeah. What? <laughs> um, for, for all we could tell. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so for better or worse, we find ourselves in a discussion where uh, interest groups and various governments present a picture that the world cannot be saved unless the the intellectual property of one or two corporations is going to be broken and and we create free access to mrna technology which really as you reminded us wasn't even conceived and developed to make COVID vaccines this was not no. what it was meant to be it's a drug development platform that was meant for cancer metabolic diseases um, it's, I think, on the, on the leading edge of many modern biotechnologies, and it is well documented that a number of countries very much desire access to this drug development platform. And uh, once granted access, no doubt that technology will be used to make products that have nothing to do with COVID. And that's really a key point because when Pfizer did the initial investment with BioNTech, they were working on it as an oncology, a cancer platform. I mean, the ability to take an RNA strain and insert it into cancer, which is a genetic condition, obviously, anybody with half a brain cell who works in the sector can say, yeah, there's something there potentially for this. Vaccines, according to our research, the countries have been cutting them. We'd stopped access to these things. We'd cut facilities. They were looking for a platform to utilize this and then to say, hey, wait a minute, this will work with COVID. Thankfully, a literal two-thirds relative risk reduction for people over 65 years old. People over 65 is unequivocal. This saved millions of lives. You're there. You're on the ground. You're at the WTO. How did this go down? How did the tenor of the conversation evolve? Oh, it was an odd feeling to be there because as as non-state actors sure there was very little access to the delegation so if anybody arrived in geneva for the ministerial conference where this was decided hoping that they would be able to talk to policymakers and the delegations and provide helpful input uh, those hopes were mostly disappointed the delegates were sequestered the way it went down was hard to predict 
uh, and and hard to see while it was happening because nobody got to see the delegates. They were locked away in rooms. They didn't seek a lot of uh, contact uh, with non-state actors who all milled around the WTO premises. At the time, there were a lot of late-night meetings. There was a lot of sitting around in lobbies. At the end of the day, the meeting unfolded, I think, very predictably. But nothing new and unexpected happened at the meeting other than um, that it lasted longer and uh, a deal was put together. Most people expected that some form of TRIPS waiver, as it was being circulated before the meeting, would probably be agreed to. And I think the United States, by being very passive, uh, played a major role in, in bringing this to pass. Right? There was a lot of expectation of U.S. leadership yeah, of course. in this space, and uh, none materialized either before or during the meeting. Well, when this first got floated, I mean, the adult in the room was Angela Merkel. I mean, she was the one who came out very vociferously and said, you know, basically, hell no, we're not going to do this. But she was no longer in office at that point. I think a lot of us were assuming the U.S. government wouldn't fold like a rented tent on this, unfortunately, but it appears they did. They did. Even the Germans ceded, I think, as they're expected to, um, much of the negotiation authority to the actors in Brussels. Right? And then it became more diluted. The German position, I think, was no longer very well represented in the very end because it became agglomerated in a general European uh, position that was driven out of the Directorate for Trade yeah. in Brussels. The, I think, most adult actors in the room to the very end remained uh, the British, the Swiss, um, and a couple of other governments that weren't so plugged into the EU or the U.S. network. You've been around this town and issue a lot longer than I have, unfortunately. <laughs> the U.S. government has traditionally been you know, seen as a huge protector and champion of IP and property rights. I mean, that's sort of the bedrock of our country. Yet the Biden administration allowed TRIPS waivers of arguably our most cutting edge, with exception of maybe CAR-T therapies, arguably the most cutting edge thing we've got, mRNA. Have you had any conversation with U.S. trade about what the heck's going on? I would say that at USTR, I think very early on in the process, uh, tied its own hands by coming out in, I want to say, March of last year, yeah. right, with you know, a, a vague endorsement of the idea of waiving IP for, for vaccines. I can't remember ever being in a, in a discussion where we drilled down on the rationale, the feasibility, and the effectiveness of a, of a waiver for, for COVID vaccine IP in solving the COVID pandemic. Right? It was, in fact, it became clear already in the fall of last year that a COVID IP waiver would probably not work and was not needed because the first vaccine yeah. surpluses, even in the developing world, started materializing in October or November. Uh, so that was even before the originally scheduled, before Omicron came along. It yeah. was already clear that African countries were beginning to receive more vaccine than they could absorb. We began to see vaccine expiration events. We saw vaccine beginning to be discarded, uh, even on the African continent. To this day, the South African government, which continues to insist uh, that a waiver was urgently, is urgently needed, must be expanded. To this day, I think the South Africans are sitting on, on 
close to 10 million unused doses of Pfizer, whose expiration date continues to be extended while it sits in South African warehouses. So we are going to see, no doubt about this, uh, big expiration and vaccine uh, destruction events, uh, not just in the West and in the global North, but in developing countries as well, while they work on bolstering other elements like um, you know, how to administer vaccines, get shots in arms, healthcare infrastructure. These were always uh, the problems that needed to be solved. Going back to the US position, though I would say what motivated it was a mix of uh, wanting to concede to uh, important democratic and progressive constituencies, uh, wanting to show on the global stage that after uh, several years of a Trump administration, this new administration is back on the global stage as a sympathetic partner uh, in global health. It was a very good virtue signal in their own mind to send. Uh, and frankly, it was also a cheap way of demonstrating uh, uh, goodwill. Because remember, uh, in the spring of last year, the United States had a good vaccine supply domestically. The United States uh, was vaccinating healthy college kids for COVID without sharing any of its own vaccine with grandmothers in Burkina Faso yeah. who were still waiting for their first dose. Right? So it was much cheaper and, and politically also much cheaper to promise to give away intellectual property than to give away actual, actual vaccines. vaccines. That came later. Right? At the time when USTR agreed and said we support a TRIPS waiver, the US was sitting on, I want to say, 17 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine, which we knew we weren't even going to approve use, or yeah. administer. It was just sitting there in warehouses. And instead of giving that away, they said, let's give away IP. At this point of the pandemic, it seemed like a, a safer and cheaper way to go forward. I think that there are many other reasons as well, but in the calculus of the administration and the many things they had to consider, maybe it made sense. But it didn't make sense for solving the pandemic. It only begins to make sense if you agree, if one concedes that this had nothing to do with COVID. It never had anything to do with COVID. You and I got to know each other because we had conversations going back to 2018, 2019 about a lot of the actions that were happening in Europe around TRIPS waivers and compulsory licensing discussions around this, particularly with Ellen Tahone, the European Public Health Alliance, Director General uh, Martin Auer of the Austrian Health Ministry. There was an effort to pry open intellectual property in Europe. There was already starting to be maneuvers. A lot of the people who were involved in this TRIPS negotiation in the WTO were involved very closely with this effort. Could all of this been predicted? Is this just simply something that was put in motion four years ago that many of us were sort of seeing evolve? And this was just a convenient opportunity to finally get a scalp on the wall, as it were. <laughs> Well, it's very cynically, I guess. Well, it's a good point. It, it's hard to view this as a long-term plan because nobody could have planned for a COVID pandemic. But it sure is a reasonable yeah. opportunity, right? I mean, it's a, never let a good never let a good crisis go to waste. In the in the words of the Obama administration, there's no doubt that um, uh, COVID, or if it wasn't COVID, it was going to be some other pandemic, would be taken uh, as an opportunity. 
um, to to reactivate well rehearsed narratives, right? The, um, and and we saw inklings of this in prior potentially pandemic events, right? During Zika, we yeah, saw it during the swine flu. So so discussions on intellectual property always pop up very very early, long before there are vaccines, products, or even pandemics. Uh, so no, it was certainly no surprise that that interest groups and affiliated stakeholders would very, very quickly start talking about intellectual property and uh, the need to do away with IP because uh, you know, uh, otherwise um, threatening events, pandemic events, cannot be responded to. Right? That narrative was pre-prepared well, and, uh, and it was, was easy to pull it out of mothballs, if you will. One thing that I do think did morph a bit over the course of the pandemic that was very visible was uh, the scope of demands that uh, IP critical groups would make. Right? At first, the calls were mainly for, oh, you got to we need compulsory licensing of patents. We need the Before use you go, of, can you yeah. just describe what a compulsory license is? Because oh, this is a key part yeah. of this, obviously. So it's the yin to the yang of the TRIPS waiver, I guess. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, so compulsory licensing is, is part of the TRIPS agreement. It's, it's built into international trade rules, basically under the TRIPS agreement. Countries can compulsory license uh, uh, patents, not trade secrets. Uh, they mainly apply to patents and are subject to certain rules. So the compulsory license needs to be specific. It needs to identify the particular patent. It needs to refer to the products to which it applies. Who gets it? Um, uh, whoever asks for a compulsory license must have asked for a voluntary license on reasonable terms first. Uh, compulsory licenses are subject to compensation. So, so it is part of international trade rules that countries have that authority. And, and they're also different from other forms of involuntary or non-consensual patent use like crown patent use or government patent use or um, uh, the denial of permanent injunctions in patent litigation. But there are other forms of access to, to patents in the law, but compulsory licenses are kind of special because there the government says, I'm going to take your We're patent. We're taking it, yeah. Yes, and, and not, I'm not taking it for my own government use. I'm giving it to one of your competitors to use. Yeah. Right? So, so those are compulsory licenses. And the second part of your question was... Well, how is this? Yeah. Then it's how did this evolve? Because what we were seeing, yeah. the, the debate that was happening yes. in, in you know, Geneva, how did, this, how did the bar move slowly? Where did we get this yes. creeping scope? Uh, early in the pandemic, discussion was all about patents and compulsory licensing. In the, I would say in the fall or late summer of 2020... Well, oh, that early. What? Yes, that I, early. Wow. I kept saying 2021, but, <laughs> but it's it really 2020. I'm yeah. talking about 2020. Right? So in the spring of 2020, it was patents and compulsory licensing, and um, so and and just it's just like the AIDS pandemic, and we need the same tools. Uh, and patents are going to be an obstacle to the development <laughs> oh, geez, of yeah. vaccines. And when when that manifestly failed to materialize, right, and vaccine products were being developed all over the world, not just in the U.S., and were approaching emergency use authorization, it was very clear that the narrative began to change. And uh, the complaints were not so much about the existence of IP, but about uh, transparency, like what are these companies going to do? How will these products be priced? Who's going to control them? And that was before any vaccine had gone into anyone's arm. 
And then once vaccines became available and became to be used, um, much more discussion focused on, oh, patents maybe aren't even all that relevant. What we really need is the affirmative transfer of the technology, of, of the technology yeah. to anyone who asks. Right? So in that sense, uh, the proponent, the NGO community moved from talking about compulsory licensing of patents uh, into an area of like affirmative expropriation. Right? This is now part of the wow. agenda. And that that's how they're phrasing it? Affirmative expropriation? No, that's how I frame it. <laughs> uh, they framed it as the compulsory transfer of, of technology, manufacturing secrets, biological materials, manufacturing cell lines, vectors. Well, this is not just information. Um, it's also other proprietary materials. And, and, what, and that bar yeah. is still moving, right? I mean, they're even looking at expanding it more in the next meeting, If I'm, from what we're hearing. Well, that is now on the agenda, right? Until December depending on who you ask, the WTO will either decide or decide to decide um, uh, whether the scope of the, the June decision on COVID vaccine IP is going to be expanded to um, uh, technology relevant to COVID therapeutics and COVID diagnostics. And, and on that point, I will give the listeners only this one point to consider there may be a common understanding around the world of what a COVID vaccine is. Well, you and I, we, when we see one, we'll probably recognize it. <laughs> yeah, like the old uh, Supreme yeah. Court ruling on pornography. Yes. Guess, right? <laughs> um, but for COVID therapeutics, that is not the case. Even in the United States alone, there's no common understanding of on what a COVID therapeutic, a COVID drug is. Right? Some people swear by ivermectin, Others say it's dangerous quackery. I have no opinion on this, but, but a lot of the drugs that are being used to treat COVID are drugs that also treat other things. In fact, that were developed to treat other things. Codical steroids. Uh, Codical yeah, steroids are exactly. extremely effective. In Anti-inflammatories. Sure. Right? They're all over the place. And uh, many of these drugs have multiple uses. And it's not at all clear what would happen Jeez. if... Um, uh, if we were to waive on a global scale uh, IP rights to things that don't have a common definition, well. if you want, right? So that's just one example of how the legal scope of an expanded waiver would be much, much, much un more unclear and ambiguous than the decision we already have, which is bad enough as ambiguity goes. Well, if you think back three years ago when we were starting to look at IPI, and most favored nations and a lot of the more aggressive things coming out of the Trump administration. There was a big move in this town to go to the other side of the aisle and say, okay, Trump doesn't win the next election. And so, you know, you have this sort of perverse situation where a lot of the companies were hugely supportive of the current administration who have, who's basically just come in and ripped apart you know, intellectual property protections. Does the Congress have any oversight over this? But trade is housed with the administration, yes? I mean, this is, I mean, the WTO agreements are binding. As well, what, what they do, especially if it's the, this waiver kind of thing, which, which releases companies from their obligations. Uh, what, what, <laughs> That's a very Norwegian way will. to say it. <laughs> right? So, you know, you could say, well, countries are free to implement this or not, right? So a country that doesn't want to waive its IP rights, doesn't have to, right? Other countries that want to do so can do so, but, you know, they have to do so within the scope of their own laws. You know, technically speaking, foreign trade is actually 
an authority of Congress, not the administration. Right? Foreign policy is the administration, but not Congress. But trade is a little bit in the middle. And Congress, for better or worse, has delegated most of its hands-on authority to the administration and will not usually interfere. Right, because once a treaty is passed, that's the congressional oversight. But then once the, the implementation of the treaty, that generally lives with the administration. Yes, on a practical level. However, if we have to exceed, if the United States has to exceed to a treaty, right, that often requires legislation. Sure. So Congress will get involved if the U.S. has to change its laws and chooses to change its laws in response to the WTO decision. However, going back to oversight and, and taking away the legalities, because whether something is legal or not, doesn't mean it's good well, policy. Well, let but me just say this. The, I mean, let's say you're, one of your small biotech members has an mRNA platform. Now, all of a sudden, they're maybe getting sucked into losing some aspects of this for which they have a license under the WTO. What recourse do they have to try and say, heck no, I don't want to give this away? What, what are the rules here? I think a lot of these rules will depend on the country in which their rights are being taken away. So in the United they, States, let's say they're well, in California, it's a new, you know, new core, a new biotech company that's working on mRNA vaccine for Parkinson's disease, yes. for example. I think in the United States, you're out of luck because, wow, picture this, right? Um, let's say the government of, let's take any country outside the United States says, yes, you know, we want a compulsory license, European, we're going to do whatever it is. In that country, why? Right? Because patent rights are uh, domestic; they're national. Why? Right? The, whatever the government of, of, say, Ghana could decide: if you have Ghanaian patents, we're just going to transfer them to whoever we want. What? Right? And if you don't like this, you have to go to a court in Ghana. In the United States, nobody's going to help you, why? Right? Because this decision, on its face, doesn't seem to affect what the company does in California. Of course it does, why? because business is global. Um, and um, I think one big concern is when, when it affects more than just patents, but also trade secrets, then the effects are also global. I did want to get back to, to trade secrets maybe sure. a little later. No, I mean, this um, is but, a good, good time to bring yeah, it up. Well, take, take a trade secret, for example. Right? Most people who have been following this casually were told, oh, don't worry, we should uh, waive intellectual property rights and also transfer manufacturing technology, proprietary technology uh, for a limited time, for a limited purpose. Right? <laughs> it's only for COVID and it's only until the pandemic is over. So why are you so worried about this? Well, imagine you have trade secret manufacturing technology why? That is not patented, but it's, it's really your very crown jewel technology. Um, imagine that gets disclosed to a competitor under some kind of COVID waiver license what? against your will. Well, at that point, it's no longer secret. Right. What? And it cannot be protected. And once information is undisclosed and once manufacturing cell lines are shared, that information can't be undisclosed and it can't be the cell line cannot be unshared afterwards. Right? Once information is out, it travels around the whole world. It can be used for any purpose. It loses its status as a trade secret and as an IP asset forever. What right? and for any purpose. So much of this discussion around the TRIPS waiver and the emphasis on it's really 
focused, it's narrow, it's time limited, the industry shouldn't be so worried. That was never true with respect to like where the discussion really was headed. And that was, as you said, right, the affirmative transfer of technology on a non-consensual basis. That has never happened in no. international trade. Right? And it would be irreversible. Obviously, the Wall Street Journal chimes in on the one thing that does concern particularly people on the Hill here. It's those of us who work in the sector are very concerned about this idea of transferring this to, say, a very aggressive government actor such as China, who is trying to move into these next generation therapies. Essentially, you're looking at a state actor acquiring these trade secrets through opening of this IP box under the TRIPS waiver. This is your job talking to these folks. Are, are they aware that this is where this is going? Are the people who work on the Hill, are, do they care? Well, uh, unofficially, I think we know that many more of them care than is apparent in the media. But unfortunately, uh, this is, I think, truly very unfortunate, is that concerns and opposition of some sort against you know, the idea of sharing intellectual property with the rest of the world for humanitarian purposes, it's well-intentioned. I think the desire of the administration to do this, at least on its face, signals good intentions. But to the extent members of Congress are concerned, opposition to the waiver has become very, very partisan. And we have seen opposition to the waiver from Republican members of Congress. We've seen none publicly from Democratic members of Congress. It is, it's been impossible to get bipartisan expressions of concern over the waiver. And at the same time, we know that the concerns overdoing this among informed members of Congress are in fact bipartisan. Right? The worry and the discomfort about doing this is being shared. Right? The next inflection point will be in December when, uh, or between now and December, the sure. United States, uh, the administration is expected to give some kind of signal on how it views the, the proposal for expanding the waiver into yet more technologies. But it's not going to stop with COVID drugs. No, of course not. The UN Secretary General is already speaking about doing something similar for climate change. Right? We have other big problems to solve going forward. And uh, the, the COVID pandemic, what's going on at the WTO, will no doubt be a blueprint for how um, else things can be rolled out. Yes, and in other international fora, this is not going to stay limited to the WTO. Discussions are already going on in the WHO about uh, talking more generally about waiving IP every time there's a health emergency. Just let's proactively waive IP. What I told you about climate change. So this proposition will keep percolating. This is There's not going to be an end to this discussion, even if there is a an expanded waiver decision in December at the WTO, this discussion will continue and the blueprint will continue to be developed. Right? It is unfortunate that the guardrails for that kind of conversation are being set this way. And it, it facilitates the development of incoherent policies. And there's the old expression, you know, a camel's nose under the tent. I think we're up to the humps now on this one, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, with and with very little, I'm, I'm afraid, long-term vision for at least looking at the United States alone about how we want to develop innovation policy. So I, I think there's clearly a national consensus in the United States 
that innovation is good and we should be investing in it and we should be spending a lot of money on it. Right? Well, that's the whole point of the biomanufacturing yeah. um, executive order. Uh, we just had a cancer moonshot. But the reality is you, you're uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul on a certain level. I mean, we're killing the value chain on the other end. It makes no sense. It's incoherent. Well, it is, yes, in the sense of, on the one hand, we're willing to spend a lot of money on innovation and we're passing laws to do so, but we're doing we're passing no laws to strengthen intellectual properties. And at the same time, we're we're proposing trips waivers. We're we're doing other things that weaken IP. So how does this make sense? It's it's hard to to unravel. I think what we're seeing is uh, while there's agreement that investment in innovation is good, there's disagreement on who should be doing that investment and who should control the products of innovation. I think there's a broadening vision in this country, especially among democratic constituencies, that the public sector should play a much, much larger role in funding innovation, in directing innovation. There's no trust in markets or self-ordering functions that happen in markets. The government should have more control over the, the results of innovation. So I think it's you know odd and it's a departure from what the how the United States has historically funded innovation and it's a departure from I think a successful model because surely we've done something right if we look at the most recent data where new drugs originate in the world right? Well, that's and that's one of the and, that's, and yeah. that's a great transition once you've yeah. really set the table perfectly here. You know, we've worked with you on a, quite a few really in, that have been quite impactful studies that have gotten a lot of visibility, both in this town and also in the media. The most recent of which uh, I'll talk about first is our, our, we released a study that was we'd been working on for a couple of years now. It was an enormous amount of work, 23,230 NIH grants from the year 2000, where we could look at the whole life cycle. We wanted to take a bite at 20 years of of innovation. So it was not a small amount of work. Over 8,000 patents were created from that. And what we found was, you know, tangentially through an analysis of those patents, we found 41 drugs that had some sort of association to those patents. We then did another dive and said, okay, of these 41 drugs, how many total patents can we identify from the NIH? And we found 511 associated patents, some of them close, some of them tangential, but had some relation to the NIH and these 41 drugs, 18 of which came to market. Publication just came out in Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science, if anyone wants to look it up. What it shows is unequivocally, it's the private sector that overwhelmingly dictates if a drug is going to be approved or not. There's just no question there. It's, it's so overwhelming. Uh, the numbers were, you know, 600 million to 44 billion to the point of approval. If we go to post-marketing commercialization, you're up to 90 billion from the private sector compared to 600 million from the NIH. I, it, there's just no statistical signal from NIH funding on market approval. Basically, if the private sector doesn't go in for size, the drug doesn't come to market. I mean, this is just the reality of the data. We didn't make anything up. This is what's in the data. Why is this being assumed to be false? You got to remember there, there are many people, including the policymaking space, to whom private investment in healthcare innovation is basically suspect. Right? Sometimes even 
unwelcome. Why? Why do you and, think that is? Why is it suspect? What's uh, that? Wasn't because if you look twenty years ago, we had you know Medicare Part D reform. That was a congressional bill to put a prescription drug benefit in. We had Buy Dole, Hatch Waxman, that allowed for the creation of the generics to you know inspire further revenue generation and new assets. I mean, there's been a whole bunch of things to spur innovation in this country. How did the wheels come off? So no other country invests as much, both as private dollars and including public dollars. So I think we've got to be fair, right? Everybody's spending money and it's a joint endeavor. Absolutely. Um, While the NIH spends about $40 billion per year, industry spends another $100 billion. So we, we spend more on innovation than other countries. We pay more for innovative products than other countries. I think there's some complacency in that the flow of new innovations that have been coming to market over the last 20 or more years has been good. Right? There's an acknowledgement that research productivity in the United States is, is very, very high. We've been doing really, really well. Maybe we're becoming spoiled. To the products that come to market today are the result of investments that happened 10, 15 or more years ago. There are misgivings that say, well, maybe this comes as at too high a cost. Right? Maybe we're paying too much for all this innovation. Why should we be paying more than comparable countries? Why shouldn't we be a little more like Europe? But what they're forgetting is that research productivity in Europe is not what it used to be. No, it's right? declined by it's, 50%. Yes. Yeah. Right? This field was once dominated by Europe for the last two or more decades, it's been so overwhelmingly dominated by U.S. research-based enterprises that that part of the equation we forget, it's, it's madness to think that we can cut the cash flow of innovative biopharmaceutical businesses in half or more, what, uh, uh, but yet expect the same amount of innovation to keep flowing into the markets. That is insanity. It makes no sense whatsoever. If you want to be more like Europe, we're going to be more like Europe. The Chinese, on the other hand, understand what it means to invest. Right? They have already surpassed Europe in, in terms of new company formation. And they're on, and, on level pegging with the United States now, yeah, as of last well, year. They're catching up at, at a, an alarming and accelerating rate. Right? And Congress knows this. But whether we have coherent policies to respond to this, at least in the healthcare and pharmaceutical innovation space, that's an open question. By the time we realize that we've made mistakes, it's going to be too late. And I don't know if uh, if Congress is going to be pleased if 15, 20 years from now we're going to turn to China for all our innovative drugs and whether we're going to be comfortable doing that right? and, and begging China for access to the most high-end innovative treatments that we no longer develop in yeah. the United States. Maybe based on an mRNA platform too. <laughs> you know? that, I'd like to put some meat on the bone of something you just said, and that is about the increase in productivity. We, we also worked on, with you on a study. You know, there's the famous Neller study from 2010 where he looked at IP innovation from a 10-year period of two, uh, 1998 to 2007. We updated that with a cohort from 2010 to 2020, roughly. So we have two 10-year chunks 
of innovation. And basically what we found was 111 more drugs there. The U.S. originated 95% of that increase. 95% originated in the U.S. And of that, over 50% came from small innovative biotech. Those are striking numbers. I mean, so what, there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, or in anyone's mind, really, even Congress's mind, that you know, under the Build Back Better, under the Inflation Reduction Act, the Innovation right? Reduction Act the, is what and, we're kind of calling it. Now. You could, well, there's there's no doubt in anyone's mind that um, uh, treatments, experimental treatments, developmental products, by the dozens, will get shelved right? because companies cannot afford to take the high-risk, high-cost, long-term, you know, their individual little moonshots at bringing the most innovative speculative drugs to market. The investment is most likely going to go elsewhere. If it stays in pharma, it, it will probably go to only the safest, but most high probability. Largest indications. Largest indications. But there's even a belief. I remember one discussion with a congressional staffer about this, uh, the you know, the decrease in research productivity where I was told, oh, we're, we're not so worried because we're being told that the drugs you're going to stop developing will probably just be the Me Too drugs. <laughs> but you'll stop developing those. And I, and we said, why, why would you think that? That's, it's it's, exa- it's going to be exactly the opposite. It's the other way around. Why, exactly who in their opposite. right minds would say, if I can develop this safe, you know, low-margin, safe product... Why? Because my margins are going to be really low under this legislation. I'm not going to do that. Why? There's no high-risk, low-reward business that I'm going to choose instead. So, no. <laughs> it it, it defies no economics, sense. I know. It, it does defy economics. So, we'll see how uh, this plays out. It's definitely a departure from the traditional model where in the United States, to go back to public investment, uh, the United States has long generously invested in basic biomedical research. But it has created thousands of opportunities for business to come in and supplement that public funding with private dollars. Every dollar the NIH spends recruits for promising products and, 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 and technologies, recruits ten or hundreds of dollars for every U.S. government dollar spent on research uh, in private follow-on investment, multiples. Right? And, and that's been a great model because the government can pull in money from the private markets and put these products for a time into the hands of entrepreneurs that are willing to take the risk and the chance. If we no longer do this, then the government will have to play that role. And I don't know if the government will... Because if you spend tax dollars on endeavors that are 90% likely to fail, well, sooner or later, there's going to be blowback. Remember Solyndra? Yeah, of course. Uh, Part of the problem with the research we've uncovered and done is there's some hard truths there. In particular, the fact the private sector generates most of this stuff that only tend to, and maybe with the biologics, it's a higher hit rate that has an NIH, tangential NIH relation. It might be closer to 15%. But anyway, out of this 350, we may find 40 drugs that have some tangential relationship to NIH and a, and a potential for the government to exercise what are called marching rights, which means they can come in, well, this is a government-funded thing. We can take it back. Now, Elizabeth, Senator Elizabeth Warren was promoting this this year. Nothing came of it, but on the back of everything else that's going on, do we think the 
ogre of Marchin rights is going to start appearing again. What are they and what would happen? And so there's a lot to unpack here. Sure. Um, how do I, I will start by with the most direct answer. And we hear this so often from our member companies. If the government starts saying, um, you have a drug and uh, we object to the way it's priced or otherwise marketed, we're going to take this patent that you've licensed from a university that originated from, NIH from government funding, funding. Yeah, NIH funding. and we're going to give it to one of your competitors, right? and maybe then the product will become cheaper or something else will happen that we want. If the government were to do this under the exercise of its margin rights, companies will be much more wary to license university-generated technology. No doubt in my mind, we've actually done the experiment in the early 90s the NIH, under pressure from Congress, and started inserting reasonable pricing clauses in its early-stage CRADA research agreements, collaborative agreements. A, a CRADA is a joint yeah. agreement between an industry partner and the government, where they Correct. can actually work together, just to clarify that yes. for people. It's a very shorthand answer. It's a collaborative research and development yes. agreement. So they do joint research, they, they put in joint resources, and it's one form of transferring technology from the public to the private sector. Car- some of the CAR-T yeah. technology came directly from Kratos, just yes. in case anyone wants yeah. to know. So that's a right. prime example. Right. And so in the early 90s, long decades before there was a product, if ever, right, just at the, re- the basic research stage, the contracts with the NIH required that if any product ever arises from something that was invented or developed during this collaboration, those products must be, quote, reasonably priced. Well, and companies said, I don't know what that's going to yeah, mean. What does that even mean? Yeah, exactly. and, and I don't know who's going to be in charge in 15, 20 years in the government. I don't know how they're going to view reasonable pricing. But it just created a lot of uncertainty about the collaboration. And people didn't sign credits, right? People signed collaborative research and development agreements with other government agencies, but not with the NIH. And it came to the point where, where Harold Varmus, at the time NIH director, rescinded the policy. Industry came back. The amount of CRADA agreements that were executed with the NIH went up like eight or tenfold over just the following year and a half. So there was a very clear jump and a very clear change in the way companies interacted and were willing to engage with government scientists. So that, that was a good thing. And the NIH, Varmus said at the time, before you can worry about how to price a drug, you must first have one. He was convinced that the the reasonable pricing clause was a chill and it caused the research that would lead to drugs to never happen in the first place. And that was not in the interest of the NIH, nor of industry or patients. Or the universities for that matter. Yes, or the <laughs> university. So we've done the experiment. We know how sensitive businesses are. What If they put equity capital at stake, developing an asset that first arose out of government funding, they can't do this under this cloud of uncertainty. Now, in fairness, we should also say that most drugs that come to market have only a very indirect, if any, connection to NIH research. And that's right? what we found in, yeah. our, in our research as well. Yeah. There were a few that were pretty on the nose, but then there were some, for example, we found four drugs of our 18 had this epidermal patch technology that was used both for stopping smoking succession as well as menopausal treatments for women. So, and it was the same epidermal patch. 
does that actually help the drug? Well, no, it was a delivery device. Yeah, right, and, and truly that's important. Absolutely. Right, and nobody is, that's another important aspect of this whole debate, this public versus private debate that we're having. Is nobody's actually denying government funding, all the researchers that work at public institutions or in government labs make incredibly important contributions to biomedical knowledge, right, and also create like a lot of the foundation on the basis of which private enterprise then develops drugs. So there's no question that the two partners in the ecosystem need each other. They work together well. They play important contributions. But discussions about how this should be valued, right, and the fact that the government gave a $500,000 grant to investigate some enzyme and therefore should call dibs, yeah, over on, a drug that's on, had $2 billion of investment yes, from the private sector. Right, yeah, exactly. That, that, that makes little sense commercially. Uh, the only way it begins to make sense is if you look at, at instances where the government actually produced a patent, uh, contributed measurably to a market-ready invention, um, where the parties bargained ex ante. Right? That's why we have licensing agreements when we license uh, university inventions or, or federal inventions, the parties sit down and they agree the government is entitled to, let's say, a 3% running royalty. That's what that's worth. And they do the same negotiations right? with the universities where these grants have come exactly. out as well. You know, University of California system has done exceptionally well, as has Harvard, as has MIT, as has MD Anderson, and, and several places have. Yes, no, and nobody's objecting to that. Because Absolutely it's, not. Yeah. This is what's so odd about this. And your point about the relative contribution, which was the, the core of both of our studies, actually, the Neller and, and the NIH study that was just released, our update to the Neller. There was a really interesting thing that occurred during COVID where there was an academic named Dr. Elkatrina Cleary who published a study in STAT that had found that remdesivir Gilead's drug had received allegedly $6.5 billion in government support and that this drug should be free. And the explosion of hatred and venom in the media of the audacity of a company to start charging money for a drug that had received $6.5 billion of public purse funding. What was fascinating is it caused such a stir that the general accounting office actually had to get involved. And the Congress said, we're going to investigate this. And they did. And what did they find? Well, the report that the GAO published, which got virtually no ink in any media after, you know, basically the media had slandered Gilead, uh, the GAO found that the intellectual property contribution of the public was zero, literally zero. We went from $6.5 billion to zero. Where, where is this coming from, the $6.5 billion number? This, is, this seems crazy to me. Oh, this, the six, here's how that worked. The $6.5 billion number... Um, here's what you do. You, you look at the drug and you ask, well, what underlying research contributed to this drug? Well, and you have to set guardrails. So, so uh, remdesivir is uh, a nucleoside analog. It's in a certain class of drugs. So we start by looking at the literature in medicinal chemistry going back a couple of decades Oh, I think this went back even further. Yeah, it, I went, think it went back, back to the 60s. Almost to the 60s. <laughs> yeah. 
And and you just look at okay, you know, which underlying science culminated in in this drug, perhaps, and many other drugs, by the way. Who laid the groundwork? So you go back to the 1960s. You sum up all the the publications in that field that contributed generally to the knowledge, and you count which of those were funded by NIH, and then you do it for uh, for some other areas, you know, viral enzyme research. And uh, and yes, and if you decide to stop in the early 70s, that's where you stop and you just add up everything that happened until then. By the same vein, you could thank um, the researchers' parents for having... You know, <laughs> uh, a colleague of mine once put it this way, um, uh, by this logic... The, the U.S. government or the, or, and state governments would deserve a royalty for Michael Crichton's novels. <laughs> Because if a public school teacher hadn't taught Michael Crichton to write, right, and had taught their readers to read, Michael Crichton wouldn't be making all, selling all these books, right? So the government deserves a cut, doesn't it? The problem is this has credibility in certain circles where we're sitting in D.C., This is the basis of why Elizabeth Warren can stand up there and pound the lectern in this case and say, you know, we need to march in on these moral drugs. We have a situation now where your members in many ways are under attack, both from not only in pricing, but on their actual discoveries, the intellectual property. And it's being fostered and in many ways promoted by members of the U.S. administration and the, the, the government, the legislators. Where does this end? Well, by the time we know where it's headed, as we said earlier, it might be too late. I, I hope it's going to end in a good place. Congress, for better or worse, passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Congress can say, for better or worse, you know, we've done something about drug prices. Maybe that's going to take some of the pressure off while the industry tries to figure out how it's going to live with this reality and maintain a flow of innovation and a reasonable business model. So a lot of these things are still up in the air. I believe that many of the attacks on intellectual property um, are just a proxy fight for, for other things, discontent, uh, the cost of health care. Uh, and the like, and IP is being taken as a scapegoat. It feels like it's a, a simple, easy go-to solution that maybe if we we do something to intellectual property, then problems in other spaces will go away. Um, I don't think this discussion will ever end. Intellectual property for as long as we live, what right, is going to continue to be controversial Uh, we will continue to have disagreements and fights over uh, who gets to control the products of innovation. We're going to continue to have disagreements over who should pay for innovation and whose rewards those should be. We have to find a solution to get these products to anyone who needs them. Nobody says it's a perfect system. Right? But IP is only going to be like one element Uh, in this broader discussion, and often it's going to be a false solution to something that really needs to be solved in other ways. The COVID pandemic is is just a small microcosm example of where false solutions are being proposed, but this is going to happen on a grander scale as well. I don't want to be negative. I, I am actually optimistic that we will continue to produce like almost miraculous 
new solutions to problems, but whether we're going to continue producing them at the rate at which we need them and whether we will continue to subscribe to the model that's worked so well where we've recruited the private sector to drive so much of this forward. That I'm much less clear about. I'm going back to what I said earlier. I think there's a fight going on on whether perhaps the public sector should just play a much bigger role in directing innovation and controlling innovation and funding innovation because there's an eroding trust in, uh, in markets and there's a, an erosion of trust in the private sector which operates within free markets that the private sector will continue to provide solutions that we want. And I believe it will if it's allowed to do so. I think there's a pushback coming against this idea that government is going to always be the solution to all our problems. I think we were there in the 70s. I think we got away from it. I think there's been a general generation of people who weren't alive in the 70s like some of us were and saw that that did not work very well. And I, it seems there's a consensus growing now that, no, this isn't working. We need to let individuals and people and, you know, free ideas and free cash flow and free capital and property survive and be liberated. I, I'm hopeful we go that way. I'm hopeful you're right, too. But, and I'm hopeful it will prevail over people who feel that maybe Venezuela is the better model and <laughs> maybe we could be a richer... You how know, many happier onco- Venezuela? How many oncology products coming out of Venezuela these days, Hans? <laughs> At least the weather is better. Well, the weather's better. Hans, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very, very much for your time. And it's been a wonderful collaboration with you and the folks at Bio. We hope long may it continue. I think I hope so too. Thank you for having me. I look forward to continuing to work with you. Thanks, Hans. All the best. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Scholtes. Our editor is Jonathan Balland. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.